Uh, we're going to be in the book of 1 John, so if you guys make your way over there into the New Testament book of 1 John, we're going to be continuing our study this fall through this uh, letter that God has uh, given to us by the name 1 John, and we'll consider the things that God um, has to say for us today here in the scriptures. One of my favorite movies uh, starring Tom Hanks is the movie Apollo 13, and if you see the movie, you'll recall that scene where, and that memorable line before the astronauts reached the moon, something went wrong with the, with the rocket ship, and uh, Tom Hanks reaches out and back to NASA and says, Houston, we have a, yeah, you guys got it. And in a similar way, the Apostle John, the last living apostle, disciple of Jesus Christ, writes this letter to the church that he has pastored, and in it he's saying, people, we have a problem. Congregants, we have a problem. For them then, and for us today, this is not a problem that we can ignore, dismiss, minimize, deny. Uh, to ignore this problem is to put our soul in grave, eternal peril. As Pastor John MacArthur stated last week in an open letter to the governor of California, Governor Newsom, this issue, this problem that we must face and address is none other than the problem of sin in our lives. Despite our best claim, sin is our problem. It's your problem. It's my problem. And John has been building his argument throughout this, these opening verses of chapter 1, identifying these false claims that people have been making in which they were denying the reality of sin. The first claim was the problem of sin was denied. The problem of sin was denied. We saw that in verse 6 where, um, where, they, where the people said sin is not a problem. And they would boast and they would say, well, we can live in sin and have fellowship with God and living a life of sin, unrepentant, ongoing, consistent sin, uh, has no effect on how we walk with God. Last Sunday, we looked at the, how this presence of sin is denied, where in verse 8, there are some who are saying that we have no sin. And it was the denial of total depravity. And here, this and I was saying, well, sin is not my problem. Maybe your problem, but it's not my problem. Well, today, when we come to verse 10 of chapter 1, we're going to see that the practice of sin is denied. And this claim asserts that sin has never been a problem. Sin has never been a problem. Is this claim true? And if it's false, what is the truth and what might be the remedy? And so let's read God's word and we'll consider, we'll read the passage that Steve has already let us in reading responsively, but we'll read it again, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1 down to verse 2 of chapter 2. Here is God's word. This is the message we have heard from him, that is Jesus Christ, and we declare to you that God is light and in him 
there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, that is God, and yet walk in darkness, that idea of walking in darkness, darkness is a, a metaphor for sin. We're living in ongoing, unrepentant sin. John says we lie and do not live out the truth, but if we walk in the light, that is if we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, we have fellowship with one another. We're united as the people of God and we're in fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us or cleanses us from all sin. The claim that we considered last week, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just or righteous and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. That's the claim that we're going to consider today. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, or the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word. So let's look more closely at this third claim. Benjamin, you're going to have to skip, catch up there uh, down to the practice of sin is denied. If you can catch up there. We're going to take a look at this uh, claim that's in verse 10 of chapter 1. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. We make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And so here we have this false claim. This false claim that is being said, that is said, We're, we have not sinned. I have never sinned. And so we have to immediately stop here and we have to ask the question and say, well, how can anyone make this claim? And why would anyone make this claim? And so again, we have to remember the context in which this letter was written in order for us to make correct interpretation of the, what the Word of God is saying. John was writing to a particular group of people who were facing a particular threat and situation. And the threat that John was writing to in that first century, the threat that those people who received this letter from John were facing, was the beginning of what we know as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was the attempted mixture of taking Old Testament Judaism, mixing it with some Christianity, and introducing into the, all of that mixture some of the Greek philosophical dualism. And the initial stages of this creation of Gnosticism uh, began to put forth this idea that said, that which is material is evil, that which is spiritual is good, and the outworking or the implication of that teaching was this, that since the body is material, it's sinful and unredeemable, and so therefore what you do with your body really doesn't matter, and so what some people might call sin is not sin at all. And so this claim was beginning to rise up and threatening the church that says, we have not sinned. And John says, 
Anyone who makes that claim makes God out to be a liar and the truth or the word of God is not in them. And so this is the issue that John was facing. Now, we, moving from the first century to today, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone say, yep, that's me. I've never sinned. So how is this claim being manifested today? And so let me share with you several common ways that people today might assert, this claim might be asserted in a roundabout way. One is this, is that right and wrong have become relative. Right and wrong have become relative. How many times have we heard people say, or maybe even we've said it ourselves, certainly the media pundits promote this idea. This is the statement. Well, that might be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. Right? And so whenever I set myself up or you set yourself up to be the standard of what is right and wrong, we can quickly be eliminated from having guilt, been guilty. Well, that might be wrong for you, but it's not wrong for me. That's not sin. You can call it sin if you want, but it's not sin to me. And so right and wrong have become relative. It, and rightness and wrongness is a, is a moving target. Depends on the situation. If something was wrong 200 years ago, it doesn't mean necessarily that's wrong today. It might be wrong for them over there, but it's not wrong for us over here. And so we quickly subscribe to this idea that says, you're free to believe what you want to believe, but I don't have to believe that. And if I don't believe that, then I'm not under that belief. Right and wrong has become relative. Another way that this uh, belief, this claim, begins to manifest itself in our culture today is that sin has been redefined. Sin has been redefined. We use euphemisms to redefine sin. We speak of our mistakes, our faults, our shortcomings, but not our sin. We don't use the word, the biblical words, like iniquity or trespasses. Instead of committing adultery, we have an affair. Instead of being, uh, being guilty of fornication, we say that we're cohabitating. Instead of being homosexual, we say that we have a same-sex attraction. Alcoholism is now a disease. Pornography is an addiction. And gambling is a bad habit. Sin has been redefined. One commentator said this way, It's easy to live without sin. If one redefines that one's actions are not sinful. Another way that this claim manifests itself today is responsibility has been replaced or removed. Allow me to give you a couple examples of how responsibility for our actions, we're no longer responsible for our actions. Consider with me the whole issue of gender identity and same-sex attraction. We have convinced ourselves and we have raised an entire generation to believe that sexual identity and sexual orientation is not merely a matter of biology but also psychology. And so now we say, well, this is my identity. This is my orientation. And so since this is who I am, this is not sin. And second illustration, when the 44-year-old 
heir to a pharmaceutical company was found to be guilty of having sexual relations with his 14-year-old stepdaughter. One judge initially required as part of his sentencing to be administered testosterone-reducing medicine as part of his punishment. He did what he did because of a chemical imbalance. We live in a time where we find ourselves no longer being culpable, responsible for our actions. Another way that this claim manifests itself is that God has been displaced. When we deny the existence of God, or when we say that all religions lead to the uh, same God, we deny the reality of a supreme ultimate standard. Everything becomes relative and subjective. And the result? Well, Romans chapter 1 tells us where that takes us. We end up with a, when we begin to exchange the truth of who God is, the Bible says that God gives us over to our degrading passions and to a depraved or a reprobate mind. And we see that very thing happening before us this day. And so notice what John tells us in verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, if we subscribe to some of these beliefs that we've just identified as beginning to work in our culture today, we make God out to be a liar. I don't know if you've been noticing the progression as we've been working through the text. But verse 6 says that if we say, if we claim that we can have fellowship with God while walking or living in darkness, we lie. I would call this the lie of a hypocrite. The word there for lie, we get our English word pseudo. It's a false front being presented. Verse 8, if we claim that we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. This is the lie of the one who is in denial. But we come to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. This is the lie of the blasphemer, the one who blasphemes who God is. Now we know that no one can make God out to be a liar because God cannot lie and does not lie. But how do we, how do we make God out to be a liar? We, we, we present something that is contrary to who God is. Let me share with you a couple ways that we make God out to be a liar. Uh, number one, we make God out to be a liar regarding the nature of sin. We make God out to be a liar regarding the nature of sin. Turn back with me. Hold your place there in, in 1 John and go back with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 51. Uh, Psalm chapter 51, this is David's confession after his sin with uh, Bathsheba. You remember that Old Testament story where David's the king. He goes out on his 
palace roof and or balcony and he notices that the woman across the way is bathing on her roof and so he sends for her knowing that she's someone else's wife and and they have relations together and she conceives and David ultimately puts her husband in harm's way on the front line on the battlefield and her life is taken and and for David thinks well okay well I've married her now and everything is covered and we're good to go and nobody's going to find out except God knows and he sends the prophet Nathan, and Nathan says, you're the man. Listen to the words that David used to describe his actions when he came under the conviction of his sin. And he confessed that to the Lord. Psalm chapter 51, verse 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my, you see that first word? Transgressions. Wash away all my, you see the second word? Iniquity. And cleanse me from all my sin. Let's just consider what God is saying to us about the nature of sin. Right? Sin is not a, 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 you know, a bad day. Uh, a minor indiscretion, uh, you know, well, I just, man, that was a bad choice. I wish I could have a do-over on that one. Sin is far greater than that. And we need to understand what God is saying to us because unless we understand the bad news, the good news of verse 1 and 2, well, it's like taking a person who is too much to eat to a restaurant saying eat, and they say, well, it's just nothing sounds good. Notice those three words. The first word that David uses, he says, transgressions. You say, what's a transgression? Transgression is rejecting God's authority. This is the word that David used to describe his actions as that of a transgression. It's high-handed rebellion against God. It is the bold-faced rejection of the place and the authority of God in our lives. Sin is ultimately setting ourselves up in the place of God. The second word that he uses is that word iniquity. And iniquity is that idea of twisting God's law. The idea of this word iniquity is to be twisted or to be crooked. It's, it's twisting God's law or bending God's law to suit our desires, our fancy, our circumstances. It's trying to circumvent what God has said. As the serpent said to Eve in the garden, has God really said? And we entertain those mind games. Well, I know what the Bible says, but well, really, <laughs> come on, this is a 21st century. You can't expect anyone to be perfect and to live by this. Not in this situation. And so we circumvent and ultimately... The idea there behind iniquity and twisting and being crooked is we pervert God's law and standard. The third word is, is sin, which simply means missing the mark. Well, transgression speak of revolt, and iniquity speaks of deviating from the standard. Sin is falling short of the standard. It's not measuring up. And while we may compare ourselves to others and we we'll say, well, at least I'm not like him or her, her, none of us measure up to who God is. We don't measure up. 
And so when we deny the practice of sin, we're, we're making God to be a liar because we're saying, well, this is not true of me. I have not lived in rebellion against God. I have not twisted or tried to get around God's word. I have not fallen short of God's standard. And now we bear up under, we must bear up and under the weight of this sin. How else do we make God to be a liar? Well, the second way that we make God to be a liar is that when we deny personal sin, the practice of sin, we make God a liar regarding the extent of sin. The extent of sin. Listen to these words of God, to, to the word of God, to these scripture verses. As I just read them to you. Allow the scriptures to bear weight on your life this morning. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. Isaiah 53.6 We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all we could go on but the Bible is explicitly clear that no one is without sin that all of us who are here today have sinned and if we make this claim that John is saying that we're with we have not sinned when we make this claim by denying our personal practice of sin, we make God a liar regarding the consequences of sin. We make God a liar regarding the consequences of sin. Turn back with me a few more books in the Bible. Go back to the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 34. We're going to get to good news. Need some smiles on your face. Let's bear up under the teaching of Scripture so that the precious truth of verse 1 and 2 can be received. Moses is leading the nation of Israel. And Moses asks to see God and says, God says, no one can see me and live, but this is what I'll do. I'll, let, I'll pass before you. And so in this passing... Listen to what God, how God reveals himself to Moses. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving, notice the words, wickedness, the word for iniquity, rebellion, the word for transgression, and sin. And we say thank you Jesus. Yet let's not miss the second part of verse 7. Yet. He does not leave. The guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the children for the. And their children for the sin. Of the parents to the third and fourth generation. The whole idea there is that God is a just God and is a holy God. 
He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is patient. He is abounding in love. He's faithful. He maintains his love. He forgives, and we thank God for that. But God is also a just God, and he's a holy God, and he will not allow the wickedness and the rebellion and the sin, those who are guilty, to go unpunished. That end of that verse 7, speaking to the third and fourth generation, that sin, we say, well, God dealt with the sin then. He's not going to deal with it now. The Lord's saying, well, listen, I, I'll deal with sin generationally. It, will, it, it reproduces itself like a virus, and it will be dealt with all the time. And so when we say, I have not sinned, we make God a liar regarding the consequences of sin. And so when we begin to allow the weight of Scripture and God to begin to fall upon us, Is there any hope? Is there any hope? I call this double trouble. And by that I mean that when we begin to realize that these things are true and it's true of all of us and none of us can escape and we might have our Sunday best on and people may not know about you or me or, or anything, but, but God does. Nothing is hidden from him. And, and so we find ourselves, what do we do in this situation? Well, John is going to take us to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And so turn back with me. I, I think the, the double trouble is this, is that we go, we swing between two extremes. If, if there is, if this is true, and if no one is without sin and no one can escape the reality of sin, then the first extreme is that, is that well, sinning, committing sin is inevitable. It's inevitable. And if it's inevitable, well, then I might as well live with this philosophy. See, if this sounds familiar, sin, confess, repeat. Sin, confess, repeat. I don't know, maybe somebody should write a song about that and make a t-shirt, sin, confess, repeat. I don't know. And John recognizes the danger of this sin is inevitable. And so look what he writes in verse 1. My dear children. The last living disciple of Jesus Christ writes, my dear children. And if he were writing this letter today, maybe to Fellowship Baptist Church, remember he's writing to the church that he was pastoring in Ephesus. He write, verse 1 of chapter 2 might read, my dear fellowship family. My dear fellowship family, I'm, I'm writing these things to you so that you will not sin. 
What I'm telling you here isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. This isn't just say, well, okay, sin's inevitable, so just sin, confess, repeat, sin, confess, repeat. It's like what the Apostle Paul argued in Romans chapter 6. If God's grace is so amazing, why don't we just go on sinning so God's amazing grace can be seen? And Paul writes, he says, God forbid, by no means. And so I stand before you today, and I say, Fellowship Baptist Church, I'm preaching these things to you today so you might not sin. That your life might not be corroded and corrupted and plagued by the iniquity and the transgression and missing God's mark. You say, well, Apostle John, Pastor Kevin, I sin. I'm not denying it. Is there any hope for me? Is there any help? And recognizing this other extreme of that double trouble, not only is sinning inevitable, but sinning might become, we might think that sinning is incurable. Incurable. Apostle John, Pastor Kevin, what about me? What do I do? Look what the Word of God says. I'm writing these things to you so you'll not sin. But if anybody does sin, John's saying, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me take you to Jesus Christ. He'll write in a few verses in chapter 3, he'll say, the reason the Son of God, that is Jesus Christ, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So how is Jesus the answer for our problem with sin. How? Look what he says, verse 1. Meet Jesus, the advocate. But if anybody does sin, we have, what does it say? What does it say? We have a who? An advocate with who? And who is our advocate? The righteous one. The advocate, the, the word there is, is the word paraclete. In the original language, a paraclete was a compound word, parakaleo, uh, kaleo, to be called, para, to be called alongside or beside. The one who is called to be alongside or to be beside. It's the basic meaning of this word is to be there. This word for advocate is used five times in the New Testament, all of them by the Apostle John, four times in the Gospel of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16. Every time it's used Jesus speaking in reference to the ministry and the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. But when he writes this letter, he reminds us of the ongoing ministry of Jesus Christ, that he is our advocate. You say, how is Jesus Christ our advocate? Well, in the Greek literature of the day, that word paraclete would be used in a legal sense, uh, like that of an attorney. Jesus Christ argues the case of God's children before God the Father. I'll have an illustration about that here in a few moments, but, but just keep that idea there, that he's like an attorney who is arguing not the merits of us before God the Father, but he's arguing his merits on our behalf before God the Father. 
Another sense in which this word was used was that of an idea of, of a supporter or a sponsor. Someone who is needed to speak on behalf of them to another. Sometimes we have that at home with our kids, right? Our child, one child is, is really in trouble with mom and dad. They've done something. And they'll say, hey, mom, or, or you, you go into mom and dad and, and you speak to them and you tell them, tell them that I'm really sorry. Tell them that I didn't mean to do it. We don't have much confidence in our siblings, do we? When they go to their, they're, they're usually the first ones to run in and let our parents know that, that we have not measured up. The role of the paraclete is to make a great person favorable to the one who is in desperate condition. We have no way and no right to plead our case before God, but Jesus Christ can and he does. You know, as I meditated upon this verse for a number of weeks, I, th I thought I was going to preach this whole passage in one Sunday. <laughs> so, so for a while I've been having this thought run through my mind. The contrast between Satan and Jesus Christ. That the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12 verse 14 that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible tells us that Satan is the, our adversary. And here in the word of God, we're given the picture that Jesus Christ is our advocate. Not only is Jesus Christ our advocate, but John will go on here in verse 2 to tell us that Jesus Christ is our atonement. And so verse 2 Meet Jesus, the atonement. Look at verse 2 again. He is the atoning sacrifice. That is, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The atoning sacrifice. Your version, your Bible might say the propitiation. Listen, I just wish we could spend probably should spend more Sundays on this, but listen. The word here that's used for atoning sacrifice, the Greek word, you guys probably don't care about it, hilisimus. And it simply means, it's used again in chapter 4, verse 10. John's going to use it again. The meaning of this word at the root, at its core, has the idea of mercy, mercy. One of the places that we see it is in Luke chapter 18. Remember, Jesus is in the temple area, and he's observing the Pharisee praying. And he's there, and he's listing his resume. Thank God I'm not like. He doesn't measure, he's not a, he hasn't fallen short like that guy. He's fallen short of God, but he's listing that at least he's not as bad as the guy next to him. And the guy next to him is head down, beating his chest. God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the root of this word here. The core of that word. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word that's used here, helisimus, is used for the mercy seat. You guys remember the mercy seat? 
the Ark of the Covenant in the holy place. This past Wednesday was Yom Kippur on the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take that spotless, perfect lamb and he would slaughter that lamb and he would take the blood and he would pour it and on top of the, on top of the Ark of the Covenant were the wings of the seraphim. And as they came together, the space in between was the mercy seat and he would take that blood and he would pour it and the sins of the nation were covered. And why did God do that? So that his wrath would be appeased. So the anger of God was satisfied in the death and the shedding of Jesus' blood. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Romans 18, 18 tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all wickedness and godlessness. And the atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ, bears the wrath of God by carrying away our sin. Let me try to illustrate this and we'll try to wrap this up here. When Kevin Barkey sins, I imagine our accuser, my accuser, runs into the presence of God, Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. And he, he did it. He's guilty. Look at what he just thought, said, did. I imagine he takes the word of God and he shows the stipulations, the commandments, the, the places that I have rebelled and lived in high-handed rebellion or I've twisted God's law. I've come short of God's glory. And he reminds God the Father of my guilt and Jesus Christ, my advocate, stands up and he says, yes, Kevin's guilty of that. And I died for that sin and because he's believed in me, my blood has been applied to that sin, and he's forgiven. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why verses 1 and 2 are so precious. I'm writing these things that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he is the atoning sacrifice concerning our sins. And not only concerning our sins, concerning the sins of the whole world. Why are we focused on praying for the unreached people groups of this year? Because Jesus Christ died for the Tanari, Tamari, Kanari people of Niger. 
this summer when I was on my reading uh, break and I was in Arkansas, one of the books on missions that I read, there's a quote in there by a missiologist named Ralph Winters and he said, a church for every people. This is why I'd like for us to begin to pray and ask God to give to us a burden that we will begin to seek the face of God so that the gospel might be reached to a place, to a tribal people, 100,000 plus people in Niger, Africa maybe, who have yet today hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That maybe we'll have a part in that. At the same time, I'm reminded of another, the comment of another missionary that I heard speak at a missions conference. And this missionary said, don't fly over one mission field to get to another mission field. And so this is why we're engaging with the children at Remington Point through mentoring with Kids Hope. And it's not too late for you. This is why we're hosting the fall festival in a five or six weeks here what are we hoping for? What is our goal? And by working at Remington Point and by hosting a fall festival, we want to see that between us and our neighborhood that a bridge is going to be built that the gospel can walk over. And good people, religious people, people a lot like us, but today who are lost, our neighbors who are lost might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ might become their advocate and atonement. This is why we do what we do. We bring the service to a close. Worship team, you guys can come on up. My question this morning, we can talk about Jesus being the advocate and the atonement in a, matter of, in a very matter-of-fact way. The question <clears throat> that I want you to consider is this. The question that I want to ask you to consider is this. Is has Jesus Christ... become my advocate and my atonement for my sins? That's the question. If he's not, you're bearing up under that sin, the transgression, the iniquity coming short of God's glory, you're bearing up under that yourself. And one day, you will stand before him and you will bear that yourself. Or today, by faith, you can repent, turn to Christ, and Christ will argue your case on the basis of his merit, not yours, to God the Father covering your sin, taking away the wrath of God.